You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. As we continue through our study of the Gospel of John, want to keep two important themes at the forefront of our discussion. One being that the um, Gospel of John is written to help us believe. Um, and so that's not a one-time thing, that's an ongoing thing. And so as we continue to study, Lord willing, the Holy Spirit will continue to increase our trust and belief in Jesus um, as we wait for him to come back. So that's one theme that we continue to see. And then the second theme would be our responsibility to share Jesus in the context that we've been placed in, that we would increasingly uh, feel confidence to to share the things that God's doing in our life, to testify about his miracles in our life, to share truth about Jesus with those that we're closest with, family members, friends, neighbors, uh, people that we share hobbies with, people that we work with. Um, those two themes continue to be something that I want us to to see as a reason for why we're studying this gospel. Last week we saw in John chapter 2 the wedding miracle uh, that Jesus uh, performs this first miracle because it is deemed to be part of his purpose and timing, even though um, that was questionable there at the beginning of the chapter. Um, Jesus demonstrates that he has power to meet every need, uh, that he uses us oftentimes to, to work his miracles, that we're a, a channel for his power, um, and that when we see his power around us, we should believe in him more and more. Uh, we saw last week that there's an issue at this wedding. Mary comes and wants him to fix it. Uh, and Jesus says that he'll only fix it if it's part of his purpose and timing and plan. Um, and it's a, it's a good indicator to us why God does some things in some people's lives and other times he does not, right? Uh, why he does something for one person that he doesn't do for another, it's part of his plan and purpose in both situations, to act in one way and to not act in the same way for somebody else. And so it helps, gives us some clarity, even though we may not have all the answers to our questions we can at least trust that God always acts when it's part of his purpose and plan, that he has sufficient power to act in both situations, but will choose to do so only if it fits his purpose. We talked about how we need to be obedient when we're asked to do something in regards to God's plan, uh, and this certainly translates into the workplace, that when we have authorities that are placed over us by God, which is in every situation, every authority that's placed over us is placed there by God, that we have a responsibility to obey, and we need to obey like the example of the people who are uh, working here at this wedding, that they, they are told to fill these jars up, and they don't just halfway do it, they don't just partially do it, they fill it all the way to the brim, right? Like they exceed maybe expectations by really following through on the instructions that are given to them, and we too need to be obedient to act when called upon. And then lastly, we saw last week that we need to keep believing Jesus as he shows himself more faithful. That belief is not a one-time thing, that we, we don't just get saved and then be content with the level of belief that we have there, that we can certainly come to Christ with a childlike faith, but God doesn't want us to maintain only a childlike faith, that he wants that faith to mature and to grow, that we're trusting him more and more and more. And so we see the disciples who have already believed in Jesus, believing in him again, believing in him more in response to what he does uh, at this wedding. And so we saw application-wise last week, when times are good or bad, keep in mind that the best is yet to come. Just like the best wine was served at the end of this wedding, God's plans for us are best in the end. And then secondly, when God does great things, we should let others know about it. It leads to belief, and so we should share God's faithfulness to us 
with others to help increase their belief as well. That brings us to the second half of chapter 2, which is the cleansing of the temple. We'll start reading in John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Our summary sentence for today. A strong knowledge of scripture will help us know when to be angry, guide our responses to criticism, and give us a strong foundation for ongoing belief. A strong knowledge of scripture will help us know when to be angry, guide our responses to criticism, and give us a strong foundation for ongoing belief. For our kids that are taking notes, I totally forgot to update this section on your notes, so you'll have to write the entire sentence. The Bible should guide our emotions. The Bible should guide our emotions. So a strong knowledge of Scripture helps us to know when to be angry, it guides our responses to criticism, and it gives us a strong foundation for ongoing belief. I told you in our discussion time this morning, there's some debate and controversy as to when this event actually takes place in the life of Jesus. Did it take place early in his ministry, like John presents, or does it take place later in his ministry, like the other synoptic gospels present? They show it happening uh, really like the last week or two of his ministry before he goes to the cross. Or is there a third option that there's actually two events taking place here, that the synoptic gospels, synoptic gospels of matthew mark and luke they're only talking about the end event and they leave out this first event and then john only mentions the first event and leaves out the end event is there actually two events that take place here when you look at um when you look at the two events if you read them in the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke and kind of examine the details there obviously there's some consistencies that jesus is driving people out that his anger is focused on the business aspect of what is taking place in the temple. In those three passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, the emphasis is placed on the dishonest gain that seems to be taking place with the, with the money. Whereas here, there's more of a focus on the location of where the business is taking place, that it's taking place in the temple versus there being any mention of dishonest gain here in this passage. I tend to lean towards, as, as, as some commentators do, that this is actually talking about two separate events, that he actually cleansed the temple twice, um, one at the beginning of his ministry, a second at the end of his ministry. Part of the reason I believe that is because when you see the reaction of the people at the end of the event in the other three Gospels, 
there's more of a resolve to kill Jesus, to crucify Jesus, to move towards the arrest of Jesus, whereas here, there's a little bit more of an inquisitive approach about who he is and what he's up to, uh, which would make sense if these things take place at the beginning, at the end. One, they're still learning about him. At the end, they know exactly who he is, and they know exactly what they want to do with him. The reason that I don't have any problem with seeing these as two different events is there's no indication here that they learn their lesson, right? So we, we see them not respond well to him driving them out. There's no reason for us to think that these tables and this process didn't start right back up the following year when Passover came around again. They did not believe that what they were doing was an issue, and we see that in the ways that they react to Jesus, okay? So probably two different events here helps us to see that there's not inconsistencies in the Gospels. Um, if, we, if we think and pause and reflect, criticism would say you can't trust the Bible because you've got one author saying this happened at the end of Jesus' life, another saying it happened at the beginning. You stop and pause for a second and you say, well, there's no inconsistencies here. This is easily explained by two separate events, okay? What's happening here in this passage? Well, you've got people who are arriving for the Passover. Again, the Passover is the time of year where the Israelites would have celebrated their redemption and release from Egypt. So that final plague where uh, the death angel passes over the, the houses or the rooms that has the blood spread on the doorpost. This was celebrated yearly, okay? And it was celebrated in Jerusalem. And those who were, uh, of ma- uh, those who were males, I think they were at the age of, it's either 15 or 19, were required to come if they lived in a certain radius <coughs> to Jerusalem. Okay, so you would have an influx of people who maybe didn't frequent the temple uh, regularly because of location, just wasn't feasible for them to go to the temple regularly, but they would make the trek for Passover. Okay, so you've got people from local area, but also people from the outside area coming in to celebrate this festival. And they come And when they come to the temple, there's a couple of requirements. One, you have to pay a temple tax. And secondly, you have to offer a sacrifice. Okay, And as I heard some of the groups talking about, out of convenience and ease, they began to offer a ministry or a service that would allow you to not have to bring your oxen and your cattle and your doves and whatever animals you were bringing from a long ways away. I mean, that just added stress to the travel. So instead, you could wait and purchase some of these items You could purchase some of these animals, those that had gone through a rigorous test to make sure they were clean, you could purchase them upon arrival in Jerusalem, all right? You've also got the mention of uh, money changers here. They were very specific about the type of coinage they would take for this temple tax. They wanted the best coins. They wanted the ones that were most purely silver. And so when you came in, there was different currency that was used in different areas of the land. And so they would make you come in, much like you would do at an airport where you would have some type of currency and need to exchange it for the currency of that area. That's what we have going on here. They would have to take their money and exchange it for the better coins that the people at the temple, working the temple, would actually accept for that tax, okay? And oftentimes the cost could be exorbitant to be able to do some of this stuff. But again, Jesus doesn't really hit upon the aspect of the business and any type of dishonesty within the business. He's more concerned about um, how the the place of worship has morphed into a place of business. To the point that I, I think you could argue that worship had potentially become dreadful and expensive at this time. Some of the 
commentator's comments, one commentator said the sounds of confession had been replaced by sounds of commerce. Right? What you, what, what you would expect in coming into the house of the Lord is to hear one thing, and instead you would have walked in uh, and heard haggling over prices. You would have heard frustration. You would have heard bartering because there wouldn't have been like a, a clear set understanding for some of this stuff. You would have had the, the freedom to bargain a little bit. So it would have been what the scene might look like at a flea market where, hey, you're selling this for this. I'm not going to pay you that. Like, would you take this amount? No, I'm not going to take that. You're insulting me, right? And so you would barter back and forth until an agreement was finally reached. Not really conducive to coming in and being prepared to worship right? If you've got this type of environment, people are potentially angry, frustrated, feeling oppressed even potentially at some of the things that are being said by people who are running the temple. This is also taking place in the courtyard of the Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles were relegated to go and they couldn't go any further into the temple. And so they're kind of in the outskirts of the temple. So these are sometimes even potentially people who have yet to place their allegiance to Yahweh, right? So you might even have some prospective people who are inquisitive, kind of questioning who is this God of Israel, and their experience, potentially, their impression is going to be, is the God of Israel merely a prop to help extort people's money? Is, is that what's going on here? This doesn't look very holy. This doesn't look very different. This looks like a bunch of people who want to take advantage of people to increase their wallets, Right, And so this is certainly not the feel, I think, that Jesus was wanting when the temple was established. You've got the wine running out here at the beginning of the chapter, and you've got the glory of God departing from the temple in this passage. One commentator said, for the temple here at this time, the religion would have become a dull routine presided over by worldly-minded leaders whose main desire was to exercise authority to get rich. Religion had become a dull routine presided over by worldly-minded leaders whose main desire was to exercise authority to get rich. You probably have some co-workers that would say that's what church is like today, that that's their impression of church, that religion, your church, your Christianity, it's a dull routine, and the church is presided over by people who are worldly-minded, who are intent on exercising their authority for their financial gain. And, and that's not an uncommon perception of what church has become. And so I think it gives us reason to kind of step back and say, why is that the case? What have we done to potentially contribute to that mindset? And what can we do to try to change that, right? Religion had become a dull routine presided over by worldly-minded leaders whose main desire was to exercise authority to get rich. Jesus sees this. This is more than just a perception for him. This is reality. So Jesus' love for his Father fuels his anger towards the temple corruption. He's not out of control. He's not losing his temper. He's angry yet without sin. We're going to see more about how that plays out in our own life. Because as I told you in our discussion groups, we too have responsibility at times to be angry and to be angry without sin. And how do we follow Jesus' example to make sure that we are not angry and sinning? Okay? So let's look at this passage a little bit more in depth. 
Number one, we need to be angry at the things that make God angry. We need to be angry at the things that make God angry. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right, so the first step in us understanding how to be angry and how to be angry without sin starts with making sure that we're angry at the right things. All right, and it means us being angry at the type of things that would make God angry. For our kids, we should be angry towards sinful things, right? We should be angry towards sinful things. Now, how do we do that? Well, it starts, first of all, with us being informed about the things that make him angry. We can't be angry at the things that make God angry if we don't know the things that make God angry, right? That should go without saying. And there's indication here in this passage that the disciples should have been aware of this situation being a type of situation that would make God angry. The disciples were aware of what a proper attitude toward temple worship should look like, right? Now, later in this passage, we're told they put the dots together and they connect them with what Jesus said about tearing the temple down, rebuilding it in three days, that after the resurrection, they realize, hey, he's talking about his body. He's talking about the resurrection, right? There's no indication here that they don't realize the zeal passage from Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, later it seems like they realize it in the moment, right? Like, so they kind of walk in, they're kind of thinking, all right, we're here to celebrate the Passover. This is normal. We've seen this before, nothing new here. And then all of a sudden, maybe they're having a conversation with somebody. And then all of a sudden, commotion ensues around them. And they turn around and Jesus is going to town on, on stopping this scene, right? And so Jesus has, has welded him a whip, and he is driving the animals out of the temple. He is overturning tables. There's coins going everywhere. And I'm sure the, the people who were frustrated about the cost of things were immediately trying to seize the money as it's being spread all over the place. This would have gone from a crazy scene to an even much crazier scene very quickly. And it's at that point when it all kind of, the dust settles and, and things start to calm down, that the disciples realize Oh, he's absolutely right here. That David talked about an intense zeal for God's temple that would consume him. And so they finally kind of step back and say, this was wrong, and now it's been made right. So for us to be angry, for us to be properly angry, we have to be informed about the things that make God angry, right? We have to be informed about the things that make God angry. And what are those type of things? It's people who turn things uh, that God made to be right into wrong type of things. It's a perversion of God's creation, right? God had established the temple to be a place of worship, to be a place of connecting with him. And it had been morphed and perverted into something quite different. That I don't know that people were coming with a mindset of connecting with God. They were coming with a mindset of, we need to do whatever it takes to get God off our back because these people are telling us this is what we have to do kind of a thing. We must be informed about the things that make him angry. Number two, we must be sensitive to when things are happening that make him angry. We need to be sensitive to when things are happening that make him angry. So the disciples were aware. They knew Psalm 69.9. They recall it very quickly 
once these events play out. The problem was they weren't sensitive to apply that knowledge to when it was happening right around them. Right? So, so they knew what makes God angry. And then when they were in the midst of that type of thing, it wasn't making them angry. And they were with Jesus and probably didn't even anticipate that he was about to get angry. Right? So we have to know the type of things that make God angry. And then we have to be sensitive to when those things are happening that are going to make him angry. The disciples were probably not concerned about the acts they saw around them. The question I put in my notes, does Scripture properly guide our feelings, our emotions, and our reactions to circumstances around us? Think of an example in 1 Corinthians 5. If you would, I, I, I don't know for sure. But if you had polled the people in, first, in, in, the, in the Corinth church, you might have asked them, hey, is, uh, is sex outside of marriage okay? They probably would have said no. Like, that, like, that's not okay. Like, we know what God's word has to say about it. But Paul has to address them about the type of relationships that they are tolerating in their church right? Like these aren't your, your friends that you work with. These aren't family members. This is somebody who is a member of your church who is living this way, and Paul is very angry about it, right? And he demands that they take immediate action towards this couple that is living in sin. I mean, they're living in sin. Now, I'm sure everybody probably kind of paused and said, man, you know what? That is wrong, and, and why have we been tolerating that? Right? And so there may have been a case where the Corinthian people knew what would make God angry, but they weren't sensitive to realize when that type of thing was happening around them, and they were giving off the perception of toleration to it. We have to be angry in a righteous way towards things that make God angry. It starts with us knowing the type of things that make God angry. Like we have to know God's word. We have to know his instructions. We have to know his standards. We have to know his uh, characteristics. We have to know things about him that give us guidance to know things that will make him angry. And then we have to be sensitive to when we are in situations where things are occurring that match up with the things that we know from Scripture that would make him angry. And that's where the disconnect was for the disciples. Number three... Once those pieces are together, we know what makes God angry. We know when those type of things are happening. Then, number three, we must be faithful to respond in our own anger towards things that make him angry. We must be faithful to respond in our own anger towards things that make him angry. So I don't think Scripture would teach us that God gets angry at sin and we should just allow him to be angry at sin. I believe that the Bible tells us that we too should be angry towards sinful things as well. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, which is really a quotation from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. So you have both the, the same language going on there. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Right? That, the way that that's constructed there, the be angry aspect, is, is more of a command versus a suggestion or, hey, if you ever find yourself angry, make sure you deal with it before you go to bed type of thing. Like There is appropriate and proper times to be angry. Now, when we think about what angry means, we may be flawed in our thinking. 
right? Angry doesn't mean shouting and yelling and, and abusive type of action, right? Like that's not the only way that anger can be expressed, right? But there is definitely times where anger should be our motivation for certain actions that we take. Spiritual zeal reacts strongly to spiritual abuses. Spiritual zeal, right, that passion that reacts strongly to spiritual abuses. Let me give you an example of this. Um, this, just, this just came to my mind about how this worked in my life one time. When I was at Liberty, um, this was right before 9-11, and we had a we were constantly having speakers come in and speak to the school. And we always had this spiritual emphasis week at the beginning of the year. Um, so we had a guest speaker come in, kind of an up-and-coming guy who had just written a book that was starting to gain a lot of traction. And me and Rob, who works at Snowbird, we were both um, in spiritual leadership on our hallway. right? So we go to a couple of these sessions. Book's too expensive, not really interested in buying it. Um, but then we start to catch wind that some of our guys in our hallway have bought this book, right? Um, and we're hearing some of the things that are in the book. And so we go and kind of seize one of the books from these guys, and, and we're kind of reading it and thumbing through it and, and kind of taking it a little bit more seriously. And immediately we get very angry about the things that this book is saying about God's Word and the insufficiencies of God's Word and the need for new revelation in light of the old revelation of the New Testament, right? Not the Old Testament, but the New Testament being too old and outdated for this author, and there needing to be new revelation, right? So we're reading this, and we're like, no, nope, this is, this is not okay. And our anger drove us to get everybody out of bed, and we had a massive hall meeting where Rob and I were like, if you've got this book, it's wrong. And it's, and it's heretical, and you need to stop reading it, and we're going to meet with administration tomorrow. So Rob and I, the next morning, march ourselves down to the spiritual life office and begin to raise Cain down there about how in the world could we bring this guy in to speak to our student body, given the fact that he believes these things. And so we're showing our campus pastor, do you believe this? No, I don't believe that. Then why are we letting this guy speak? Because this isn't preferential type stuff. This is heretical type stuff, right? And there was a pretty dominant personality on campus at that time who was extremely offended at the criticism that we brought to him because he had been the one that made the decision. So everybody else in his office is like, no, you guys are right. Like, we don't, this isn't good, right? Guy over here, I think, was a little embarrassed and was like, no, we're standing with this. Like, we are going to hold to this. And it got really, like, tense um, because Rob and I weren't sure if we were going to be allowed to stay at Liberty. Like, like, the administration was really pressing in on us that we were going to either have to back down or potentially leave. And I mentioned the 9-11 piece because 9-11 happened a couple of days later, and, like, our, our issues that we were bringing up became all of a sudden not that important for administration and they kind of left us, left us alone, and we continued to try to correct things within our hallway. To me, this is an example of how we were very righteously angry about a situation. Now, we didn't lose our cool, lose our temper, begin to, to cuss or, or just go rampant on our hallway or with administration, 
But it did motivate us. It drove us to take action because we felt like God's glory, God's reputation was being attacked and we were supporting it. And so it absolutely motivated the actions that we took, right? Because I know what God's word has to say about God's word, right? That it's inspired by God, that it's sufficient, right? And, and to have somebody attack that caused great anger for me for a passion for God's glory. So there are appropriate times to be angry, but I think when our anger is appropriate, we are under control. We can clearly articulate what it is that's making us angry, right? Like those that get angry and then you kind of stop and pause and say, why, why are you feeling this way? And there's a, there's, a, there's a lack of ability to articulate it. Probably a good sign that there's not righteous anger taking place there, that it's far more emotionally, sinfully driven potentially. We have to know what makes God angry. We have to be sensitive to when these type of things are happening. And then when we see them happen, we have to respond in our own anger towards them. Spiritual zeal reacts strongly to spiritual abuses. Number four, we must be slow to respond in our own anger towards those things that make him angry as well. The Bible cautions us about being angry too quickly. Some passages that deal with sinful anger, James chapter 1, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, Galatians 5, 20, Colossians 3, 8. These are all passages that talk about how we are very prone to be angry from a man's standpoint and in a sinful standpoint that creates division, dissension, and those are not appropriate ways to express anger. But in Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, we find that even the Lord is slow in his anger, right? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That Psalm 103, 8 passage is, is a passage that we find in multiple places in the Old Testament. So we find that the Lord is merciful, gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, perish but that all should come to repentance. Right? So we have the, the slowness there of, of God to act in his anger. And then we have James 1.19. Instructions towards us. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Right? And so if we are slow to anger, we will oftentimes protect ourselves from the anger of man that doesn't lead to the righteousness of God. But I think the aspect of being slow to anger, being angry without sin, that if we are slow to this process, it will lead us to be angry when we need to be angry and will protect us from being angry when we should not be. All right? The implication for us here is that righteous anger is towards the things that make God angry, and it is manifested based on the action, not the particular day you are having. It's probably a good sign that you're not righteously angry if your anger is only manifested on days where your kids were giving you a hard time or your circumstances weren't exactly how you wanted them to go. You were late to work. Traffic was bad. Now's the day that I really want to show some righteous anger towards something, right? It, it, it's not something that gets based on the type of day that we're having. Righteous anger is manifested based on the action that is being observed. 
And that idea of manifestation, it's the motivation for why we take steps in regards to that anger. And let me tell you, like, like I said, when we hear angry, we think temper. We think yelling. We think screaming. We think high emotion. But I think we can be angry towards something and it drive us to our, knee, our knees to pray about something. Right? That I can be so angry about something that it shapes how I spend my time so that I don't have to be lashing out at somebody because I'm angry. That's not the only way that we manifest our anger. We can absolutely manifest our anger towards a situation by turning to God in prayer about the situation. We can take action against a situation without losing our cool about the situation, right? We can be angry. We can be appropriately angry about our country taking steps to further legalize abortion and it not look like me standing up here ranting and raving about it. And it could look absolutely like me saying, you know what? Our quarter one mission money is going to go towards the CPS so that we can fund life in light of the fact that life is under attack, right? We can be angry about something and not lose our temper about it. We can channel that anger to motivate us towards specific action because we are angry about it, right? So righteous anger, it's towards the things that make God angry, and it's manifested based on the action, not the particular day. When we, when we talk about Jesus' anger, if you were to say, hey, does Jesus ever get angry in Scripture? Like, this is the passage you go to, right? Oh, yeah, I remember that time where he's flipping tables over and he's whipping people and driving people out of the temple. I think Jesus was angry a lot more than in just this situation. But I think the way that it looked did not always look like it did in the temple, right? Jesus is not known as an angry person. When we, when we get done reading through this gospel, we're not going to step back and say, hey, if we were to write some things that really stood out, about us, stood out to us about Jesus, I don't know that anger is going to be at the top of the list. But I certainly think he was grieved and angry about a lot of the things that he sees. I think he's angry a lot of the times in his discussion with the Pharisees, but he's having civilized conversation with them, right? So, um, He's not highly known for being angry in the ways that we typically think of what anger looks like. But I do think that Jesus was properly angry a lot of the time because I think a lot of the time he saw things that made his father angry. And I think he was motivated to take action against it, as we should be as well. So we got to be informed about what makes God's angry, what made God's angry. <coughs> we have to be sensitive when we see that type of stuff happening around us. Right? Then we have to be slow to anger, but we need to respond in those situations as well. We need to be faithful to respond in our own anger in those type of situations. All right. Number two, be reflective when rebuked by others. Be reflective when rebuked by others. For our kids, we should pause and think when someone tells us we are wrong. All right, so Jesus sees this scene, doesn't make him happy. He takes action against it, right? So he shows up to worship his father, sees the spectacle before him. He takes action against it, drives everybody out. His disciples recognize, hey, this is totally consistent with Scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Notice that (laughs) the Jewish people in the temple never paused to say, should you have done these things? Was it right for you to do these things? Instead, they pause and say, 
do you have the right to tell us not to do these things? Right? They're completely motivated by, does Jesus have the authority to tell us this? Versus stopping and listening and saying, is Jesus right about what he just told us in regards to this? Which leads me to two points here for us to reflect upon. Number one, appropriateness is more important than acceptableness. Appropriateness is more important than acceptableness. The focus is on where they've chosen to do their business versus whether they should be doing business at all. The business had probably started as a ministry of convenience and service, but had developed into a distraction. All right, so something that was meant to make things easier on the worshiper had now begun to affect the ability of the worshiper to worship, right? Like, I'm, I'm supposed to be doing these things to make it easier for you to worship, right? Like, we want you to not dread coming from far away to celebrate Passover. So, hey, leave your animals there. When you get here, we will have done a thorough process to make animals available to you to purchase so you can worship here and not have the added stress of bringing your animals with you. So, <clears throat> probably started out with somebody wanting to start a, a ministry opportunity. Somebody maybe raising their hand and saying, hey, I got an idea. Why don't, we, why don't we do this to serve our people? Why don't we do this to make it easier on our people? Hey, great idea. Let's set this up. Let's do this, right? What had, become some, what, what had started off as something that was supposed to make things easier had now begun to affect the ability of the worshiper. These are potentially legitimate activities being done in an inappropriate location. I don't know if Jesus addresses this, if it's outside the temple. People had to buy sacrifices. It was okay for them to have this tax. And there's nothing here mentioned about the dishonesty of how they were handling it. Now, there may have been. We see it in the other accounts, but it's not mentioned here, so I'm not going to even stress that point. I think Jesus may have overlooked this and, and potentially agreed with it had it been taking place outside the place of worship. But the moment it had been moved into the house of worship and it had become a distraction for the purpose of worship, that's where he took issue with it. That's where he took issue with it. The appropriateness of it was more important than the acceptableness of it. Was it acceptable for them to do this? Yeah. It just wasn't appropriate for them to do it here. That leads to number two, authority is less important than accuracy. Authority is less important than accuracy. People want proof that Jesus has the right to demand this change, and the people fail to ask whether Jesus was just to demand this change. There's no self-examination about their wrong attitudes and actions. Now this plays out perfectly within my work situation because every single day I get emails from parents drawing criticism upon something that we are doing. Teacher, student, me, the school, things outside my control, things inside my control, right? Every single day I get some type of email, the parent email that you don't want to get that draws some type of criticism um, and then you also get the ones that offer the exact solution that will fix everything, right? Um, and a lot of times, I think teachers and principals alike are prone to very quickly dismiss those 
very quickly to react defensively and say, that's completely false, that's completely not right, this parent has no idea what's going on, delete or canned response, thank you so much, we'll consider that, and we're done with it. My approach has always been different. Um, I don't like criticism. Nobody likes criticism. Nobody wants to be criticized. But I've also tried to take the approach that there's always a little bit of truth in just about every criticism, right? Um, And so I always try to take any type of uh, critical email given to me, and I really try to sift through what has been said, right? So I want to pause, reflect, think, because my first reaction is no, right? My first reaction is we're right, you're wrong, you don't know. So I always try to pause and reflect and say, okay, what's this parent really saying? A lot of times I'll even print the email off and I'll have a highlighter handy and I'll really start to try to to dissect particular statements that probably give me further insight into what this parent's really thinking, right? And I always try to take something away from every criticism that says, you know what? Most of this is false. Most of this is wrong. Most of this is a bad perception. But you know what? They raise, an, they raise a piece right here that's worth me considering. Maybe I don't do anything with it, but it's at least worth me considering. I think we need to be in the habit. Because most of the time, teachers, principals are going to say, this parent's never taught before. They've never been in a classroom before. They've never worked with kids before. So they can't speak to this situation, right? Like they don't have the authority to speak to this situation. I think we've got to get into the habit ourselves where criticism is going to come towards us, whether it's about our job, our parenting style, uh, the way that we coach, whatever it is, criticism is always going to come our way. And we can be the type of people that just quickly dismiss it and never learn from it or grow from it. Or we can be the type of people that stop and say, "Let let me just reflect on that a little bit to see if there's any truth and validity, any cause for me to make some type of change. Because if the Jews here had paused and said, hey, he got really upset here, maybe they would have been led to the same conclusion as the disciples that said, you know what, Psalm 69.9 says that the zeal of the Lord will consume him. Maybe we're not taking worship seriously. Maybe we're not taking the environment seriously. Maybe we do need to reevaluate and make some changes. Maybe Jesus doesn't have what they would deem the right authority to make these type of statements but it doesn't change the fact that his statements may be true. And I think we have to have that perspective in our own life, that criticism may come towards us. It may come from a source that we deem not authoritative enough to speak to this situation, but I think it is healthy because we've got to admit that we're flawed, that we're sinful, that we have blind spots. I think it's absolutely healthy for us to pause and stop and say, is there any truth to that criticism? And do I need to make any changes? The people want proof that Jesus has the right to demand this change, They're not worried about whether or not he's just to demand the change. And what's their response? Instead, they demand a sign, right? They say, hey, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The problem is they've already missed the sign. The sign was him doing these things, right? You read in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan. Sorry, wrong. I clicked on the wrong one. 
Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. There's a prophecy here about Jesus doing something, right? Refining the process, correcting the process. So here, they're not pausing to think, hey, is there any truth to what Jesus is saying? They're just like, hey, show us a sign. Show us that you have the authority. And they've completely missed it. They've already missed what he's trying to teach them. The implication, criticism and rebuke should always give us cause to pause and reflect on the validity of the concerns regardless of the source. Anytime we get criticism, we would do well to pause and reflect on the validity of the concerns raised regardless of the source. It'll protect us from looking like this. Number three, be a follower rather than an admirer. For our kids, we should believe God always based on his word. Be a follower rather than an admirer. All right, so they demand a sign here. Show us the sign that gives you the authority to demand these type of things. Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Be a follower rather than an admirer. Number one, a belief based on signs can be shallow and temporary. A belief based on signs can be shallow and temporary. After Jesus makes this statement, in verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So apparently Jesus goes on to do some type of signs. We're not told what. We're not told how. We don't, we're not told anything about them, just that he did some signs and people believed in his name because of them. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Here's the really interesting thing when you understand the original language. The original language says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not believe in them because he knew all people. So that word for believe in verse 23 and the word for commit in verse 24, they're both the same word. So while people claim to believe in him, Jesus chooses not to believe in them. You say, why would Jesus do that? Like, these people are believing in him. Why, why would he reject them? Why would he, why would he not respond to them? Because when the signs stop, the following stops as well. They gave the appearance of belief, but they would not go on believing. Jesus is aware of true followers, and he isn't shocked when fake followers fall away. He knows the inward man. We saw that with Nathaniel, right? Like he's already, he's already demonstrated his ability to know a man's heart. Right, so this is an example where we would say, hey, belief's not a one-time thing. Like, true belief keeps on believing, keeps on going. 
So we've got disciples who have believed in Jesus, and we see them believing again, believing again, and they're not getting saved over and over and over again, right? Like they got saved one time. We cross from death to life. We cross from darkness to light. John 5 is very clear about that. And you may not know when you got saved specifically. You may not be able to tell me the day and the time. You just know today, hey, at some point in my past, I got saved. Jesus knows when you cross from death to life. He knows when you believed, right? And you have been faithfully believing in him more and more since that day. These people have kind of an experience Maybe that camp experience where they say, you know what, I want to follow Jesus, and then two weeks later, they're not following Jesus anymore. And so John just gives us the heads up that says, hey, these people believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. This wasn't real belief. This was based on signs. They were admiring him. They were impressed by him, but they weren't captured by him. They weren't ready to go all in on him. It was temporary. It was shallow. Number two, a belief based on his word, though, will be fruitful and sustaining. Because that's what we see with the disciples back in verse 22. When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They're not just uh, impressed about the resurrection as a sign. Their belief is really tied to scripture that said this would happen. So absolutely, the resurrection is the foundation of their faith, but it's tied directly to the Scripture, right? So their belief in Scripture is what is sustaining their belief, their ongoing belief. The Holy Spirit is empowering them to keep believing through the Word, not through signs. And what we have here, Jesus is recommunicating them some things. He's communicating change in the temple understanding because he's talking about his body and not this physical structure. He's talking about being the new temple, and how is Jesus like a temple? Where the, well, the temple was where God meets man, right? And now God meets man in, in Jesus, not through a physical structure. It's also where sacrifices was offered. And we see sacrifices being redefined too in John chapter 1, verse 29, where Jesus is identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This statement about the temple coming down and it being rebuilt, I mean, it had a strong impression not just on the disciples but on his enemies as well. If you read in Matthew 26 and Matthew 27, they are accusing Jesus of this statement at his trial, and they are using it to mock him when he's on the cross. <coughs> so it was remembered by everybody. Strong impression made upon everybody. <coughs> Only the disciples get the spiritual aspect of it. He demonstrates ultimate authority through the resurrection. <coughs> if he has authority over death, it gives him authority over everything else, including the temple. The implication for us is that be careful that your allegiance to God is not tied to his willingness to keep doing things you want him to do. Allegiance to God is not tied to his willingness to keep doing things you want him to do. The foundation of our faith, why we keep believing in him, it has to be tied to our belief in his word. Because I'm here to tell you, he will stop doing things that you want him to do at some point. He will do things differently than you wanted him to do them. He will not do things that you would have liked for him to have done. And if our allegiance to him is tied to him continuing to do signs and wonders and impressive things for us, we will fall away. We will stop believing. 
because he will stop satisfying us. We won't be impressed anymore. We won't admire him anymore. The wonder and the, and the awe of it will, will fade. But if our belief in him is tied to his word and him doing things that fit into his purpose and his plan and not being like Mary and coming and saying, we need you to fix this because we have this narrow track of what we want him to do, we'll fall away. We'll be discontent with him. The disciples had a different approach. They believed the things that he was doing because it was rooted in Scripture. Their belief was rooted in Scripture and not just the sign only. All right, a lot of application in here, but a question that I want to leave you with to kind of wrap up and tie in the anger piece, the new understanding of the temple piece, because God's Word goes further to not only help us see that Jesus is this understanding of the temple, but 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6, and Ephesians 2, all three of those passages talk about us being a part of this temple as well, this spiritual temple, that our bodies are the temple of God. So here's the, here's the, the catch to all this talk about anger and, and how we need to be angry towards the things that hate God is that righteous anger has to be directed inwardly towards ourselves before it can really be appropriately Uh, directed towards others outside of us or towards situations outside of us because Jesus can be angry and never have to be angry at at himself because he's perfect, right? But we as sinful beings who are prone to be angry like man, who are going to keep sinning until Jesus comes back, man, we, we can't be angry at sin in the lives of others if we're not also angry about it in our own life. So the righteous anger has to start at home Do we properly hate sin and uphold his glory in the way that we conduct our life? We could find all kinds of reasons to be angry at sin in the lives of others and in the circumstances of others. But for us to be righteous in our anger properly, we have to be informed about what makes makes God angry. We need to be sensitive to when it's happening. And that starts at home. What type of things make God angry and when am I doing those things? And when, and when and how am I going to take action against those own things in my life, right? Our family worship questions. What are some proper ways to handle our anger towards sin? And then in light of what Jesus has to say about the resurrection and Easter coming soon, what are some ways that we want to intentionally celebrate the resurrection this year with Easter coming soon? A couple of points for you to reflect upon as family. Let's pray together. God, we come to you and we thank you and praise you for this passage of Scripture. God, we're thankful that Jesus gives us a great example of what it looks like to be properly angry towards things that upset you. God, help us to see that we too need to be angry towards the things that make you angry. But God, help us to be humble enough to recognize that it starts with us and the things that we do. God, help us to recognize that you place people in our life sometimes to to criticize us and to rebuke us because we are doing things that are not okay. God, help us not to be so dismissive sometimes of people who bring those things to our attention because we don't think they have the authority to do so. God, help us to take every criticism as an opportunity to pause and reflect, to recognize that we are a work in progress and that we certainly have ways and room for improvement. 
God, help us as we continue to, to know you and learn about you and experience you in our own lives. God, that we would be devoted followers of you based on your word and not based on how you perform in our life. God, help us to realize that you have bigger plans and purposes than we could ever imagine. God, protect us from being dissatisfied or discontent with you because you don't do the things that we want you to do. God, help our belief to be a lot stronger than that. Help our trust to be a lot stronger than that. Help us to be able to see things around us through a a lens of of a bigger picture. God, help our, our trust and belief in you to run much deeper to where we know that you intend good for us at all times even if it's in ways that we don't fully understand. God, help us to hate sin in our life. Help us to keep growing and maturing in our faith. Keep us hopeful in light of your resurrection. There's a coming resurrection for us as well. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.